You're exactly right. I would like to add one thing to what my wife said, which is this church will always, as long as I have anything to do with it, it will be a church that finds the balance between discipline and children. And they will forever be in tension. You know that I'm an orderly person. You know that I like things to be orderly. I like to make things structure. Children do not automatically know how to do that. It takes time. They are disruptors. Our families, when they are raising children, they do not all raise them the same. I had a small group. If you were there, please mask your face right now. But I had a small group. Lil thought it was uproariously funny. She happened to be there. Because we got to talking about, uh, somehow we got on the topic, what were we dealing with? Yeah, we're dealing culture and Bible. and Yeah, that doesn't belong in church. Thank you. It was the last lesson. That doesn't belong in church. And so we got to talking a little bit about, uh, you know, most of us don't say people don't belong in church. We just, we switch it over to their behaviors don't belong in church. We get slick about it. And... Um, and there are behaviors that don't belong in church. I remember one small group, they said, naked people don't belong in church. I said, amen, I agree, 100%. However, even that gets us into a sliding scale, doesn't it? Because when the lost come in from the world, some of their states of dress are pretty close to naked. And uh, we're going to pray that God work with them and bring them along, amen? So I was in this group, and we were talking, and somehow the, the tenor of the conversation got, and we began to, you know, and I've heard it. I heard it before when I was being raised and all of this. And, well, when I was raising kids, and we got this whole tenor going on. And I'm, I'm closer to grandpa than I am to parent. Everybody here needs to understand that. At 47, I am closer to grandpa than I am to parent, Okay. And uh, so I'm starting, to, I'm starting to see things from that perspective. I'm starting to be a little bit more, why are these kids here and why are they being a pain? Okay? So I'm sitting in the group and we're discussing and, and uh, I just, I sensed there was just a little bit of a teetering on the balance towards more discipline and less inclusion. This cannot become a church with no children. Do you know what the number one signature way you will know that a church is not dying is dead? It's dead. It's done. You will have to resurrect it from the dead as if there are no children. We cannot become a church with no children. We cannot become a church with no children. It's not acceptable for us to become a church. Jesus said it to his disciples, suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of heaven. We cannot become that. So sitting in that group and the tenor of the conversation, and I am this way and I get away with this. Teachers, you might have to be a little bit more careful. There is a reason that I'm pastor. I get to use that every once in a while. And I smiled at the group and I, uh, I said, well, you know, I, I believed in raising my kids by one years of age. You know, I could do that, and Vincent tells me to this day, he hears that and his head snaps. Doesn't matter where he's at. He's 21 years old. This is a highly, highly gifted young man, very intelligent, handling himself, running his life. That makes his head snap. 
I'm all about discipline. I've been saying I was going to do it since I was a wee little boy. And everybody would look at me and say, you wait till you get your own. Well, you waited till I got my own. And guess what? They all ran the way I said they were going to run. So I'm going along this line. It was really funny. I had lots of people, heads bobbing. That's right, Pastor. We need to, we need to move along with this. That's right, Pastor. And then I smiled, and this is what cracked Lil up. I smiled at him, and I did one of my quick moves, and I looked at him, and I said, can I tell you all something? Some of you are raising kids now, and some of you have raised kids. Not a one of you does it the way I think you should. So whose standard are we going to use? And I'm dead serious. I haven't met any of you that raise your kids the way I think you should. Not a single one of you. Ooh, that got a little stiff, didn't it? So we have to, like God, create a space in which children matter, children are included, and families are given that space to work it out because I can only, I'm only empowered to raise my own children. I don't get to raise yours. I understand things about my children that you don't understand. There are things about your children that only you understand. And so this has got to be a place where, yes, we need to be orderly, and yes, we need to continue to grow our kids, but we also must create space in which children are not just tolerated, they're included. And, yeah, I want to wring some people's necks every once in a while. I have no problem saying that to you. I want to wring some of you parents' necks at times and go, oh, dear Jesus, would you please? But your children matter. Keep bringing them. Keep raising them. Keep teaching them. Their value supersedes your performance. Their value supersedes my inconvenience. Their value is more important than my comfort. Church, say amen. Has to stay there. Has to stay there. All right. Um, I want to, uh, I've been wondering what I was going to preach tonight. I didn't know what she was dealing with tonight, so uh, if it dovetails at all, it'll be the Lord's hand because it's not mine because, frankly, I went to sleep this afternoon with no idea what I was bringing to you tonight and uh, woke up. I really didn't want to wake up. Sister Rachel was very honest tonight, rainy, cold, dark night. She wanted to stay home in her PJs. So did I hear you right? Your top half is your PJs? Oh, you can manage it. It feels like, it feels like PJs. Oh, okay. I, I thought maybe she came to church in her PJs. That'd be a first for Rachel. I'd like to see that sometime just to get you out of your comfort zone. You come to your church in your PJs. I know you do. I've seen you a couple times in your house with your PJs, so I know that. I, they're modest. There's nothing wrong with that. Anyway, so she, you know, so I woke up from my nap, and frankly, I was having a hard time waking up from my nap. I didn't want to wake up from a nap. So whoever asked of the Lugo family, hey, Mom, do you ever not want to go to church? Most Sunday nights, I don't want to go to church. But guess what? I'm here. So so are you. Yeah, so I, I woke up and uh, pick up my phone. There's a text. It's Desi. He's like, when you got a minute, he's always so kind and gracious. Rachel's made him such a gentleman. He's, when you have a moment, could you give me a call? <laughs> me, what do I do, Lil? Call me. 
<laughs> Desi's, that's too long. When you have a moment, dear Lord, call me. And that usually means call me fast. Well, anyway, he had, he had written and he was working with something. And so he, I called him and he says, uh, he says, in all the hubbub of dealing with uh, the children's uh, ministry seminar, uh, we've got a receipt missing. Rachel's upset. She can't find the receipt, and it's gone. And end of the month is when receipts have to be turned into Leela, so we reconcile our credit card statement and everything else. So I explained to him that the IRS wants receipts, even though you've bought it with a credit card. It's a church credit card. You got the statement. Church is responsible. Church is going to pay for it. They want receipts backing it up. And according to the letter of the law, you don't get reimbursed unless you have a receipt. So I explained all that to Desi, and then I said, look, Desi, I know that you all are catching up with this. this, is, this is, it's, it's not a $5,000 expenditure. It's not a $200 expenditure. It was $22. I said, write a note where it was, what the amount was, put it in with Lil. And I said, and as long as you don't make it a habit, I said, I'm not going to stiff you on the $22. Work on this, figure out how to keep your receipts, figure out the process, etc. So I hung up the phone. And I'm starting to like go, okay, God, I'd like to know what I'm speaking about tonight. And right there and then, and this is how God does sometimes, he just taps me and he says, talk about the standard versus performance. The standard versus performance. You get this wrong either direction, and you're going to have a problem in your Christian walk with God. You say, what are you talking about? Let me read my text. So 1 John chapter 1, John begins, or whoever, whichever John it is, Brother Brickle believes it's the John we know, he writes and he says, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. So this does, this, this speaks to, this is a disciple that literally walked with Jesus. We've seen him. We've heard him. We're telling you about what we've seen. We're telling you about what we've heard. This sounds very similar to the language used in the book of Acts, where disciples would say, look, all we can do is tell you what we've seen and what we've heard. We saw him with our own eyes, he says. We touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. So this isn't secondhand. This isn't somebody else told me. We ourselves are in relationship with the word of life. We know who this was. We saw him. We touched him. Our own eyes. We heard him with our own ears. Our own hands touched him. Verse 2, he says, This one who is life itself was revealed to us. And we have seen him. We didn't always see him, we didn't always know him, but he's been revealed to us, and now we see him. 
And now we testify. And now we proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. We're not just telling you this out of our head or out of our ear. It's our hands that have touched him. It's our ears that have heard him. It's our eyes that have seen him. He is the eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. Verse number three, we proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen. He's kind of making a point here, isn't he? See the repetition? See the emphasis? We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. We already know the word of life. We already know him who is eternal life. But we want you to join us. We want you to be a part of this relationship, a part of this process. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse number four, we are writing. So everything that John is writing in this epistle, he says, we are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. So John is writing this letter. The whole purpose of this letter is to, on the basis of his firsthand eyewitness, hearing, seeing, touching, the actual word made flesh. And the relationship that resulted from it, he says, we want you to be a part of that. We want you to share in this relationship. We want you to be a part of the joy that we have, having had revealed to us he who is eternal life. And then verse 5, he says, this is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. Okay, so we're in real relationship. We've touched, we've heard, we've seen, we've seen things that are hard to put down. We've heard things that are hard to explain. We've touched something we don't even know how to characterize. But it's the word of life. It's eternal life among us. And this is the message we heard from the word made flesh. This is the message we heard from him. God is light. And there is no darkness in him at all. Now, this is, this is picture. This is imagery, okay? The imagery of light and darkness. And this is a good piece of the case to say that whoever wrote the Gospel of John perhaps wrote this letter. If not, the writer of this letter definitely is aware of the Gospel. He's the light of the world. This is an image that shows up in John chapter 1. But not a bit of darkness is present within God. Now, what's really going on? Is this about light? No, this is about light standing for righteousness, and this is about darkness standing for sin or brokenness or unrighteousness. God is pure righteousness, and in him is not even the slightest bit of darkness, of unrighteousness. And on the basis of that, the writer goes on and says in verse number six, so we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We're telling a lie. We're not practicing the truth. God is total light, no darkness. 
Not a hint. There's not a single pixel out to put it into our digital age. You can't find any absence of perfection. And if we go on living in spiritual darkness, but say we're in relationship with this God, we're lying. We're not practicing the truth. I want you to pause right there. That feels a little scary to me. That feels a little overwhelming to me. Not a, not a scintilla of darkness, not even a hint of a problem, not anything wrong. And because of them seeing and hearing and touching Jesus, the Word made flesh, the eternal life in our midst, if we're in relationship with him, we're not supposed to have any darkness either. Now, I got a newsflash for all of you. I got a lot of darkness. I hope it don't offend you, but I got a newsflash for you. You got a lot of darkness. We got pixels out all over the place. He goes on, verse 7, he says, but if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So you read this thus far, and what you've got is, yeah, in the past you may have had sin. In the past you may have been broken. In the past you may have had problems. But now because you've touched and you've heard and you've had access to the word made flesh, he who has no darkness within him, he who is perfection and is all light, into that space now, you are now walking in the light of God. You now no longer walk in darkness. There's no more darkness left in you, and you have fellowship, this joy. I want you to fellowship in this relationship with me. This is why I've written this letter to you. You will have this fellowship because you walk in the light and not in the darkness. And God is so powerful in his light and in his righteousness that he'll cleanse you from all your sin. Now, if I stopped right there, I, I, I'm overwhelmed. I, I'm a little upset. I'm a little flummoxed. I'm not getting my $22 reimbursement. The standard's here, and I'm here. Sorry, Rachel, that God had to use that to give me the sermon. And I debated whether to use the example, and I decided, A, I was supposed to use the example, and B, if you didn't like it, it'd be good for you. So there we go. You don't have it. <laughs> oh, are you blaming your husband? Oh, that's really cold. Hello, Eve. <laughs> Moving right along. In fact, verse 8 is going to sting a little bit. Verse number 8, if we claim we have no sin, <laughs> I didn't make it up. <laughs> if we claim we have no sin, 
We are only fooling ourselves. And notice he uses the exact same language and not living in the truth. So he says, if you walk in this relationship with God and yet you still are in spiritual darkness, you're lying and you're not living truthfully. But now he says, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. Then he goes on, he says, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Verse number 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar. Same language. Notice that again. We're lying. The truth is we're walking not in truth. We're calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. Now, everybody knows in this church, if you don't, let me inform you, chapter breaks, they're lovely modern inventions, but they're modern inventions. The very next piece of this thought is chapter 2, verse 1. This is not a new thought. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. What is our standard? No sin. That's our standard. No sin. What is the IRS's standard? Every receipt or you don't get reimbursed. All through life, at any level, there are standards, there are rules, there are structures that we are held accountable to. Us as a Christian, in relationship with the Word made flesh, no sin. He says, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But you already know what's, it's right in front of you. But he doesn't stop there, does he? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ. He is the Word made flesh. He is the one that we have seen with our own eyes. He's the one that we have heard with our own ears. He's the one that we've touched with our own hands. He's the one that we're bearing witness to. He's the one that we are in fellowship with. He's the one that we want you in relationship with too because there's joy in this relationship. This Jesus Christ is your advocate. This is the one who is truly righteous. This is the one with no pixels out. This is the one with no darkness in him. And he will plead your case. Put my title slide up. We have to get the proper place of mercy. What do I mean by that? Here's where we err. There are those who believe what we believe, but mercy is in the wrong place. Mercy is totally in the past. And now you better clean your life up. The standard trumps mercy. To use my funny example, Rachel, tough schnuggies, pay the church $22. 
you know the rules. It's your problem you didn't have the receipt or your husband lost it or whatever happened. Pay up. And we can laugh, and that's why I use the example. We can laugh about something as inconsequential or small as as a receipt, and we know where it was, we know what was spent on, we have the credit card statement. It's not like somebody embezzled any money. All of that's there, but the rules, the rules. And you've probably not run into Christians like that. The rules are the rules. They're harsh. They're unkind. The horrible thing is, is the reason that they are so harsh and so unkind is because they are terrified. Because they know they got pixels out too. They know they have darkness within them too. So it becomes a game of acting like you have no sin. Even as you demand of your neighbor, no sin. Now, the other side is to change the standard. That doesn't put mercy in its proper place either. Oh, Rachel, do the best you can. But, you know, if you have your receipts or you don't have your receipts, we're gonna, we know you're doing your best. We know you're a good person. I'm speaking in a parable here. And you have heard Christians do exactly that. If I love God and I'm doing the best I know how, then that's God. God's a good God. That's going to be enough. They got mercy in the wrong spot. They got mercy in the wrong spot. So where's the proper place? Now, the reason the Lord laid this on me, and I've been fighting him all night about this, because there's two things going on here. Number one, I want you to understand salvation. But number two, I want you to understand leadership. You don't move the standard. So my conversation with Desi was very straightforward. I understand you're getting your legs under you. I understand you're learning about this. Figure out your system. I handle my receipts every week, if not every day. That way I don't make that mistake, et cetera, et cetera. The standard is every purchase gets a receipt. I didn't move the standard. Write on a full piece of paper where it was spent, the $22, put it in. We're not going to stiff you for the 22 but don't make a habit of it. Don't move the standard. Extend mercy at the performance. Why do I want you to understand this? Because you have to understand this is what God is doing. Now, some of you are sitting there going, whew, thank you, Jesus. And some of you are going, well, I think I do pretty good with the standard, and that doesn't feel fair. And it depends on what we're judging ourselves on. and depends on what areas we're looking at. There are areas I can pick where I'm flawless. When's the last time I didn't have a receipt, though? <laughs> so I get to judge the Lugo, see? incompetent people. What's your problem? Why can't you get your receipts together? Why, what's the... But what about the areas where I have pixels out? 
What about my areas where I have darkness? And they don't. There's none that doeth good, the Scriptures say. No, not one. We can pick a discrete area and see ourselves as perfectly full of light and turn to our brother or our sister and see them as filled with all kinds of problems and we can lord ourselves over them and we can look down upon them. But the problem is, is that all of us have areas that we're falling short. There's a gap between the standard of righteousness that John begins to speak of as he writes this epistle and our performance. There's a gap. There's always a gap. There will always, until heaven and earth have been destroyed and a new heaven and a new earth created, there will always be a gap between the righteousness and the standard of that righteousness, which is God himself, and our performance There's always a gap. And that gap is filled by God. He stretches between his standard of absolute light, no darkness at all, and our broken state. The purpose of writing this, John says, is so that you don't sin. The standard is set, and we strive for that standard. You don't play with the standard. You don't move the standard. You don't rationalize the standard. You don't contextualize the standard. It is fixed. All light, no darkness. But then when you fall short, you find a master who looks at you and says, you know, lady, you can't be, you can't keep committing adultery. You got, you, you got to stop. You got to stop sinning. But I don't condemn you. You find a master who in his word tells you what you're supposed to be doing. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And in an altar of repentance, you find a God who advocates for you, who says, I love you. You got to stop it. You got to change it. But I love you. We must as a church Put mercy in its proper place. It is not a thing of the past. It is not a thing to change the standard. It's God's extension of himself from the perfect standard to where we're at at this point in time with the full expectation that tomorrow we'll be at a different spot. And the next day, we'll be at a different spot. And the next day, we'll be at a different spot. How does this have anything to do with leadership? Some unspecified period in the future, 
if Rachel keeps losing receipts, she'll pay the bill. But I fully know that that ain't going to happen because she'll grow or Desi will, whichever one messed it up. Now, again, don't get on them about the receipt, please. That's not the point. But I got to give you something that's not salvific to understand the principle. When you lead people, don't move the standard. Don't ask for the standard to be moved. We cannot have excellence. In leadership, that's the language of salvation. You cannot have excellence if you move the standard. They don't move the measurements of the long jump. You either make it or you don't. The standard stays where it's at. The length of a swim in the pool is the same length. They don't move the standard. What's the sprint? What's the merit? They don't move the standard. I got to break some news to you. God did not invent the participation trophies. We did. A good effort is all that's needed. No, it's not. A good effort will not make a plane fly. A good effort will not put a man on the moon. You can either miss it or make it. One of the interesting things I learned from Elder Lugo, and I didn't even realize this, in, in his background, he's done a lot of stuff. I don't even know all the stuff that he's done. In fact, from what I hear, there's some stuff I don't even want to know that you've done. You've been places, seen things, done things. I don't even want to go there. But he had knowledge of stuff. So I'm, I'm looking at these screws because we're hanging some heavy screens on walls, and I don't know anything about. I don't know jack squat about construction. All I know is that screen costs some money, and I don't want it falling down. So I'm like, is this, is this bolt long enough? So he's like, how many turns do you have on it? This one's the one that caught my attention. How many turns do you have on it? I said, one, two, four. He said, three's enough. That was enough for the planes we built. That'll be enough for the screen. Okay, I, I felt better. We'll put it up. Now, me, I'd have been all flummoxed. I'd have been off and trying to find another screw where I get six or seven. Because if seven's good enough, I need ten. And if, if you know, I'm going to overdo it because I don't know the standard. Excellence can only be achieved if you don't change the standard. But God knows that all of us are going to fall short of that standard. And if you are a true leader, you're going to know that everyone you work with, if you are a leader, everyone you work with will fall short of the standard. Don't move the standard, but extend mercy. Bridge the gap from where they are now to where they will be. If you've ever been afraid of working with me, I have two answers for you. Number one, it's not my fault. It's my parents' fault. Okay, that's the first one. That's the funny one. The second answer is, I know how to extend mercy. 
But you see what will happen is, is both in sin and in leadership, mercy and the receipt of mercy requires humility. Changing the standard doesn't require humility. I did well enough. See, I met the standard. No, you didn't. You changed the standard and then met it. See, our pride gets riled up. And don't tell me our pride don't get riled up because my pride gets riled up. And I know if my pride gets riled up, yours does too. Our pride gets riled up when we fall short. This is why Desi is always so hard on students about that we're all fixated with what grades he got and everything. I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't change the standard. Doesn't make you a bad person. Doesn't make you a failure. Doesn't even make you a bad student. You don't change standards, period. That one is my parents' fault, flat out, okay? I remember playing games with them. They never changed the standard. So I got whooped all the time. (laughs) His dad would play by the rules, and he was better than me. I remember playing ping pong for years and years, playing ping pong. Dad chased the ball, and I'd try to hit it, and he'd chase the ball. But he he still didn't change the standard. (laughs) Then he tried to change the standard. Darkness entered in. The light was not in him. Yes, exactly. No, I beat you before you were old. Don't, don't beat. See, see, you're coming up with changing the standard. No, I beat you straight up. You were still good, and I beat you. Now, why do we have to understand this? Why do we have to put mercy in its proper place? Let me tie a bow on it. Because God's not going to change the standard on you. The standard is no darkness. That's what you have to shoot for. That's what you have to strive for. That's what you have to work for. That's what you keep pressing towards. Paul put it this way. He says, I take that which is in the past, I put it behind me, and I press forward for the mark. Not God's going to move the mark. You know how we do. We're playing some kind of game. Okay, we'll come in closer and pitch close to you now. That's not a real game. We changed the standard. And I'm not telling you not to do that with your kids. That's not what I'm saying. But they will never become great baseball players if you keep. I'll come in closer. That's not how it's going to work. Standard has to stay. Don't put mercy on the standard. Don't put condemnation on the performance. Put mercy in the middle. That which stretches between the standard that cannot move and the performance that can improve. We've got to have that understanding in order to not only for ourselves but for those disciples that we minister to hold the standard but extend mercy some of you are struggling right now i know it in my spirit because when i extend mercy that i've changed the standard no you haven't you've acknowledged that they don't yet meet the standard 
This is what happens in Bible quizzing. And I'll use this as an example. Some of you parents, you have a real cow about this. It's a real struggle. And we struggle too. Let me tell you, as coaches, we struggle. Sister Rachel's struggling with this aspect of coaching. She hates this part because she wants to move the standard. I know. And she loves her kids. She loves the kids she's coaching. She loves it. But the standard is not just there out of nowhere. It's a standard that determines what's going to happen when they go and participate in the tournament. So if we move the standard, we'll pay for that later. But is there a place for mercy? Yes, there's a place for mercy. And so you have to find this balance. And luckily, God is perfect at it. We are not. God is perfect at it. He knows exactly when to speak with that stern voice of straighten up. And the kind voice that says, I know you've fallen short, but I love you. The voice of love and discipline, both in the same. Now, in leadership, none of us are ever going to get that right. I'm not going to get it right. I can tell you that right now. Talk to Lil. Sometimes I get it right. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I'm just really upset because the standard isn't being met and I'm not very merciful. And other times, maybe I'm a little too merciful. Not very often, though, right? <laughs> see, I lobbed that to her. That was, that was a softball. Did you see that? I came in close and tossed you that one. It's important for us in our own relationship with God that we understand this. He hasn't moved the standard when he extends his mercy. He still expects you not to sin. I write this to you so that you don't sin. But when you sin, you've got an advocate. If you think that's your card to use, wow, i got an advocate. So I can do anything I want you're going to run into a problem because the standard doesn't move. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man or a woman soweth, that shall they also reap. It will come back to bite you. When it comes to other disciples, strive to understand for yourself and express to them the balance of a right standard with mercy in its proper place. And when it comes to leadership, if you want to understand your pastor, I don't move the standard. Period. On myself, I won't move the standard. I'll tell people, I'm falling short on this. We're not where we need to be. I'm not where I need to be. We've got to do better. I've got to do better. Can I throw you another softball? Do I own when I fall short? You want to work with me? Own when you fall short. Why? Why does that matter? Why do I got to say it? It bugs me. It's hard to do. I know. But you'll never reach the standard if you don't own that you're not yet there. Never. If you own, you're not yet there. There's something that happens inside of us. We go back and we try again. And that's exactly what the master has said to us in our salvation, and it applies to our leadership. 
we go back and we try again. What stops it? And this is my last comment. What stops us from doing that? I probably shouldn't end on this. I'm about to kick the bucket, as Sister Jackie says. What stops us is one word. And it's a very simple word, and yet it's a real problem for all of us. It's called pride. God, you know the verse, resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Which do you want? Do you want his grace or do you want his resistance? Either one, please understand, he's not quitting on you. In fact, he's being a good father to you. But which one do you want him to use? Resistance or grace? Both will grow you. In my opinion, one is just more painful. And when it comes to leadership, I'm not as good as God. The people who work with me, they're not as good as God. But we're trying to find the proper balance and the proper place of mercy. If you'll own your mistakes, then we'll extend mercy and grace. If you're proud, I'm going to fight you. Because you'll never grow and get better until you say, I've fallen short. So pray for Sister Rachel. She's got to own that, that she lost that receipt. Once she does that, then we'll be good. We'll be getting where we need to go. I love you, Rachel. Thank you for allowing me to have a little comedic element here. And I know it's bugging the dickens out of you, but you'll be all right. You'll love me later. Let's stand and thank the Lord and pray for me because Rachel's going to chew me up tonight. All right. Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for your word. God, I thank you, Lord, that you do understand. We, 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 are, not, we are not understanding it perfectly, but you, you know the proper place of mercy. Thank you for mercy. Thank you, Lord, for righteousness that says no darkness, absolutely none, perfection, but God, you are our advocate. Thank you for being our advocate. Thank you for extending mercy. Thank you for calling us forward, constantly pulling us forward, bringing us forward, saying you can do better, you can do better, and helping us and staying with us in the midst of it. Help us to model that as disciples. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Praise God. See, we didn't need that.